Okay, Fixoplasm episode 99, Piranesi by Susanna Clark. This episode is the first one to be chosen by my Shaper tier patrons. Thank you everyone and I hope you like it. So Piranesi is Susanna Clark's 2020 novel which was shortlisted and nominated for a number of prizes. Um, it was a finalist in the 2021 Hugos, uh, nominated for the Nebula and World Fantasy Awards, shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, won Audiobook of the Year this year. Um, so I think most listeners will be familiar with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and Piranesi is a fraction of that book's length uh, and without the footnotes. And it's also a closed world with a limited stage and cast, so it has a very different overall feel. I mean, it's, it's actually pretty close to the primary world fantasy that I love from the likes of um, Christopher Priest, M. John Harrison, Jonathan Carroll. So as always, I'll do a synopsis, uh, then some remarks on the game opportunities, and finally something about complementary media, where I expect I'll talk about uh, those authors and a few other things. Here we go. This is the synopsis. and The premise is, it's a mystery novel, and there's not much better introduction than the back cover blurb, which I will read here. Quote, Perinacy lives in the house, perhaps he always has. In his notebooks, day after day, he makes a clear and careful record of its wonders. The labyrinth of halls, the thousands upon thousands of statues, the tides that thunder up staircases, the clouds that move in slow procession through the upper halls. On Tuesdays and Fridays, Piranesi sees his friend, the other. At other times, he brings tributes of food to the dead, but mostly, he's alone. Messages begin to appear, scratched out in chalk on the pavements. There is someone new in the house. But who are they, and what do they want? Are they a friend? Or do they bring destruction and madness, as the other claims? Lost texts must be found, secrets must be uncovered. The world that Piranesi thought he knew is becoming strange and dangerous. The beauty of the house is immeasurable, its kindness infinite. So to understand the setup, we really need to talk about the book's four main characters. Um, Piranesi, who isn't certain that that's his actual name, lives alone in the house, surviving, making devotions to the various statues and dead people, um, writing in his notebooks, and we get his first-person account. He's an unreliable narrator, um, not because he's twisting the account he's giving us, but because he's lacking a great deal of his memories. The second character, the other, appears to Piranesi and appears to the reader to be taking measurements with the equipment that Piranesi describes as um, shining instruments, you know, other objects that, that they're not given a lot of detail. But the other uses Piranesi to collaborate on investigations into the house's dimensions and even gifts Piranesi with useful items uh, like a camera and shoes. Also of note, the name Piranesi has been bestowed upon our point of view character by the other. And then finally, there are two other characters of note. One which Piranesi calls the Prophet, who is a kind of mystic at the heart of the mystery, and the other, who is known for most of the book as Sixteen. And Piranesi has numbered the other humans dwelling in the house who... By the way, Piranesi doesn't make a distinction between people who are alive and people who are dead. They're all people. Um, so he's numbered the other people dwelling in the house including the Biscuit Box Man and various other collections of bones arranged in a particular way. Um, so he's, he's given them these numbers, but he anticipates the arrival of a 16th person, and that, that's why this newcomer is named 16. So then the novel 
itself is a series of journal entries that illustrates the dimensions of the house. You know, it's hundreds of halls and statues, the action of the sea and the tides on the lower levels. Um, and the hook comes, as suggested by the blurb, uh, with Pyrenees' anticipation of the arrival of another person through various messages left, as well as detritus like crisp packets and, and fish finger packets and other things that are obviously from our world and not from this fairly austere setting of, you know, halls packed with statues of minotaurs and fauns, uh, you know, with the polished and neatly arranged bones of the dead. Pyrenees, he does treat this place with a kind of reverence, you know, he treats it like a temple and he objects to people defiling it with their rubbish. So at the start of the novel, there's this kind of equilibrium state where there's Pyrenees, there's the other with his experiments, and there's the vastness of the house, and that's it. And that's kind of the baseline. But then the disrupting element comes with the approach of 16, and then Pyrenees goes from being eager to meet this person to fearful of them, following dire warnings from the other of how this person is likely to attempt to drive Pyrenees mad. At the same time, Pyrenees discovers other journals that he doesn't remember creating. Now, he has this extensive index and reference system for his journals, but there are some references to book numbers that are higher than the current journal he's writing in. Now, the other is obviously being manipulative. You know, he tells Pernese that the latter is forgetful. You know, he casts doubt on the reliability of our point-of-view character's memory and uh, directly to Piranesi. And Piranesi accepts this. Um, so what we do is we see Piranesi swing back and forth between believing the other um, and therefore avoiding 16 and the journals which are apparently in his own hand and contradict some of the other's comments. Now, we might have stayed in this state where Piranesi is, is failing to make a decision um, if it were not for the encounter with the prophet which gives him a new perspective uh, and hints at the other's motives for keeping himself and 16 apart. And one of the things the prophet says is that the closer Piranesi gets to 16, the more dangerous the other will become. Now, partway through the novel, the journals begin to reference other people with real-world names, uh, including Silvia D'Agostino, James Ritter, Dr. Ketterly. And this kind of provides the historical backdrop for the house itself. Now, not the house's history, but the people around the interest in the house in this other world. So this is the mystery we're eventually piecing together. You know, the relationship between these names and the house and the other details in the journals. Now, we have evidence from early in the book that objects from our world appear in the halls of the house, and Piranesi recognises them as real-world objects, so it's not a stretch to connect this house, this closed magical world, with our world on the outside, which is populated by the, the names in the book, some of whom have found ways to transition from the external world to this one by a magical ritual or shifting their consciousness to see alternative pathways through reality. Now, the book concludes with two important milestones. One is the resolving of the mystery and the connection between worlds and people, the uh, role that all these names have. The other is the effect the magical world has on identity and the attitudes of the various characters and how they resolve their relationship with the magical world at the end of the book. And I think that's enough structure to talk about what I want to talk about next without spoiling the plot, because basically you know, part of the joy is you, you, you're getting a lot of backstory and detail about all the different magicians who are interested in the world, and you're piecing it together. 
it's a short book and it's beautifully and evocatively written and it's really well paced so I thoroughly recommend it and in fact my partner read this first and, and this was actually the one she liked least of the Hugo and Nebula nominees uh, and that says something about the other novels so I, I think I might put those in the show notes as approved by Liz but um, Liz also told me that she thought I would like this more than she did and, and she wasn't wrong you know this this book hits all of my sweet spots for modern magical realism uh, primary world mystery slash fantasy if you know what I mean so I want to move on to sort of the remarks about game ability and, and the specific elements that you might pick out. And the first one I want to talk about is unreliable narrators. So as I said before, Piranesi is unreliable in that they doubt their own memory, but they're not in any way dishonest about their observations or feelings. You know, they, they just simply lack all the information at one time, but they revise their view based on new information. And this is not the same as a dishonest narrator who keeps some observations from the reader for some of a portion of a book to change the reader's perspective. You know, that's, that's an internal source of unreliability, whereas Piranesi's unreliability is external, well, outside Piranesi's control. So I was thinking, can you have an unreliable narrator in a role-playing game? And uh, I think the answer is, yeah, I guess so. Um... You need a particular game structure, or at least a social contract that supports it. So I want to explore those ideas that I wrote down. So first of all, consider a basic investigation scenario. You, know, you, might, you might have an unreliable or limited information about the world from the outset as a consequence of the scenario, but as the game progresses, all this information trickles in and you get a chance to reevaluate your opinion of the world. So even if your characters don't know how they got there, they can still engage with the new environment and it will generally seem plausible at the table. And and I think players can also deal fine with partial or total amnesia, you know, not knowing their own backstory. Uh, they can accept that they are different people than the person they were before they lost their memories as long as they retain agency after they get their memories back. And at the times I've seen this be a bit of a problem, the, you know, amnesia in role-playing, uh, the times I've seen it um, being an issue is when regaining memories requires the PC or the, the player of the PC to change the PC's behaviour. So, you know, the, the example is the GM passes the player a note that says, oh, you've just remembered who you are and now you should betray the rest of the party by taking this action. And that might go completely against how they've been playing their PC up to this point and, and how they want to play their PC. And one of the points in Piranesi is the acceptance that Piranesi isn't the person they were before they lost their former identity and memory. You know, in exactly the same way, I think, um, once your pregens are handed over to the players... Those characters belong to the players, not the GM. I think um, the most bizarre way I've seen the emergence of an incomplete information in a game at the table was playing a how-to-host-a-murder-mystery type dinner party game. And we, we all got a little booklet that outlined our characters. And at each course, we'd turn a new page, find new information about our character and their relationships and, and so on. And it was all light-hearted and we just played it for laughs and got drunk, but there were several moments where later information that I should have known from the start totally called into question earlier scenes. And, and that's really stuck in my head as something not to do with game design. It was very clear that, based on the earlier information, 
we were playing different characters than the game authors thought we would be playing at the stage we learned this new information. Okay, moving on. One of the issues with amnesiac characters is they're likely to be GM intensive in a more traditional game. So um, one of my scenarios, which is still in draft, was about a bunch of people meeting up in an abandoned building with no memory of the other, trying to establish their own identity. And the problem was not working out all the entanglements between characters, which would all be player backstory. It was how to bring them to the table in a way that wouldn't just railroad the players with set pieces, and also how not to make some pieces redundant after the big reveal. Uh, I, now I'm thinking about this, I, I'm inclined to go back and see if I can find a better way to make it work. I think with a more shared or GMless approach, um, you, you kind of that's where the social contract comes in. You, you need a consensus on how the reveals happen about past lives and who gets to narrate them. You know, is it the player, is it the GM, or is it another player, you know, the player to your right? Um, the Fugue system for Las Vegas does this quite nicely, if I remember, although that's more about visions being triggered than actual evidence. Um, but if I remember correctly, there was some pretty good advice, like um, folding other characters into the visions to give a sense of connection between the characters. Even if at that stage, you know, in, in the early game, all the characters were lacking a coherent memory and they didn't know why they had all been buried naked in shallow graves just outside Vegas. So just to wrap up my thoughts here about amnesia, I, I think the best way to tackle amnesia is to let the players play their incomplete characters, give them the evidence, and then let them react how they see fit. Don't assume that they will neatly become whole people again. Don't assume that for a pair of characters with an apparent past relationship, that they will resume that relationship. Maybe it ends up asymmetric, uh, with one person insisting that they remember the other, whilst the other says, sorry, I, I just don't remember you, or the events that you're describing. Now, if, if you're looking for unreliability in a game session, making sure all the players have the option to contradict or refute or draw different conclusions from evidence seems like the way to make it, you know, unreliable and unpredictable. Okay, um, now, seeing as I've mentioned groups of players with past relationships, I want to move to my second heading, which is Closed Worlds. And this is expressed in the novel in two ways. The first one is, it's a small number of characters, and they all know or are aware of each other. So the motives and the actions of all the characters will depend on their relationships with the others. And the second is, is obviously, it's, it's geographically closed. It's the house itself entirely self-contained and mysterious. Um, and we know it's closed from our world in its own little bubble because you need special actions to get there. And we know it's next to our world because objects from our world end up there. And the closed nature of the cast and the closed world go hand in hand. And one of the key themes is Pyrenees' loneliness and the fact that he can simultaneously relate to all of the other characters in the house. So um, Dunbar's number uh, is supposedly the cognitive limits of our ability to maintain functional social relationships, uh, and it's put between 100 and 250 people. And, you know, beyond that number of people, you cannot reliably relate to everyone you know. Um, but this number, you know, 100 is already way higher than the number of people Piranesi sees, which is about 20, you know, less than 20. 
Um, you know, so obviously you've got a number counted up to 16. I'm not sure if the other counts amongst those numbers or the profit, but um, it's less than 20. What, this, what, what I mean by this is then that Piranesi can legitimately consider the relationships with all the people in the house, living and dead, and have opinions and feelings about them. Now, for the relationship webs, the system I always go back to is drama system with its asymmetric relationships based on what one person wants of another and, and the reasons the other won't just give it to them. But thinking about this closed world, let's say you intentionally limit yourself as the, as the gym to 20 characters total. Some of these are PCs and some are NPCs. And some might be dead in their tombs and some might be just names in a journal. So you could pace the game by the revelation of these different characters and use those introductions to explore how each PC feels about the others. As for the geographically closed world, the house is fairly straightforward. I mean, we, we know it has low levels which are close to the sea and the high levels which are shrouded in clouds. And it has these distinctive halls, which Pyrenees is numbered, by the way, you know, and they go in all, all compass directions. And part of the puzzle in the book is the physical mapping of the place's dimensions and many halls. It's also worth noting that the world has an effect on people who stay too long. And this may be why Piranesi has amnesia. I've always liked the idea of travel costs applied to, for example, hacks crawling. A couple of games count the cost of exploring in torches, I think. You know, I'm not sure if the black hack does. I mean, Torchbearer does, obviously. I'm pretty sure that Patrick Stewart's Veins of the Earth features, you know, discussion about, you know, your the number of torches you have left. Um, so let's say you have the, like, this external world with travellers who are interested in the magical world of the house and they, they make the transition and arrive there and start exploring. And maybe they have the equivalent of, um, you know, Ariadne's thread, uh, which determines how far they can go through the labyrinth and then safely retrace their steps. But the more they push it, the more they risk, you know, degrading their their ability to return and that would make it a kind of map making game you have to assume the magicians who visit the house are looking for something which could be a defined thing in a traditional gm game or something uh, more abstract you know it, it could be defined as a progress clock if if you used a power by the apocalypse style design but it's they're, they're moving towards something and uh, you know some information or object of significance but as for their ability to move forward, their resources that allow them to stay in the house and stay sane, what do they have to lose? It's, it's kind of their, their core memories and their sense of self and their, their memories of past relationships. Um, this kind of puts me in mind of something like Wraith the Oblivion, you know, with, with its passions and fetters, you know, these, these mechanized things on the character sheet that represent core feelings and, uh, you know, emotions and connections to places and people. Uh, and I would then be tempted to, to have these labyrinth divers, uh, well, stake their own passions and fetters when they go diving. You know, if, if they stretch their, stretch their thread beyond its normal extension and uh, risk that, they're actually risking their own sense of self which you mechanise by having those on the table as passions and vetters. Most importantly, I think, is the relationship between the closed world and the closed cast, though. So, in Piranesi, 
all the impetus comes from forces external to the house. You know, the, the house itself is static and the plot enters the house via characters. Apparently she is stimulated by messages from or direct conversation with the other characters. So if we construct a closed world like the house which magicians want to explore, we could choose that the house itself has no plot, it's just a space. Um, but anything the magicians are looking for in this space is perhaps a product of some previous traveller. And I think that brings me to the third and final topic I've got on my crib sheet, which is the dead. Apparently he doesn't make a distinction between the living and the dead. You know, they're all people in the world of the house. More to the point, he has this concept of one of my dead and not one of my dead. And this is something very specific that he, he writes in a note to the 16, um, sort of explaining how he hopes they're alive. If they're alive, he hopes they'll meet soon. He hopes if they are dead and one of his dead, which I think by that he means he's collected them, then they should rest assured that they are getting the right attention and devotions in their own personal niche where their remains are being stored. And um, if they're dead and not one of his dead, he hopes that, uh, you know, he hopes he'll come across their bones or whatever. It's worth noting also, um, and this, this, this occurred to me whilst I was you know, writing my notes here, that um, this observance regarding the dead and my dead and not my dead, that isn't connected with the house. That's entirely Piranesi. You know, he, he's basically made up his own rituals or devotions. You know, it's entirely his initiative. Um, maybe this mechanism of, of revering the dead is the way that he holds it together along with his journal writing. But anyway, the, the idea of my dead suggests that, uh, let, let, let's say you have these traveling mages who want to penetrate the labyrinth. Let's say that each traveling mage, whatever their state of mind, has this circle of contacts and, and some of these may well be dead, but they will still have personal significance. Um, I did wonder, uh, do, do the dead actually speak to Piranesi? Um, and would they speak to someone else? Um, are the dead a mechanism for reflection or confession? You know, you, you're in the presence of the dead. You count them as you know one of your people. Do you talk to them? Do they have a personality to you? This personal dead could represent facets of the character's life, I guess. You know, perhaps ones that they can't quite access or put into words, but nevertheless, they they are symbolic of something they have lost. And once again, I'm drawn to Wraith the Oblivion for its passions and fetters, and maybe also for the notions of the labyrinth. And the dead could be a very central theme in a the game modelled on this scenario, if every artefact or record originates from outside the house. You know, what if all of the PCs were like Piranesi with failing memory, you know, a personal mental map of the area and personal connections to the living and the dead. And that would grant each PC unique access to a part of the map, as well as unique advisors, and possibly powers if those advisors were in the position to grant powers to the living. Now you can imagine these half-crazed magicians covered in fetishes of the dead and other objects of personal significance making their way through the house. Piranesi, by the way, cultivates the uh, his own style of Maybe not magical fetishes, but certainly decorations that reflect his environment. You know, he puts shells in his hair and, and other wears other decorations. Um, so these wandering magicians will stand in the space between life and death. 
but it's a very personal subjective view of the underworld um and i suppose this is going to be color more than substance um you know it colors the relationship map each character has whether they um who, who is living and who is dead and who they connect to so when i wrote the meta city framework which was you know for modeling cities one of the core ideas was tying people to locations because of the experiences they'd had there so you could for example in character generation say um this is the place where I did my first burglary job and you uh, write the name of it and you write uh, the map and um, and you write it down on a location which then goes on the map. Everyone knows that location, but the actual context is personal to you. So if you have a world characterized by many halls, some of with little niches and altars personal to a particular character, these locations can take on a particular significance for a given character. You know, mapping out the most important areas of the labyrinth for that PC, dictating their traveling habits and you know, the, the places that they return to to you know, recharge and center themselves. And talking that through, this has kind of given me all kinds of ideas for a, a modern magical game. Uh, not so much the magical underground of something like Unknown Armies or Mage, but something a bit more intimate and personal, which is uh, frankly more in keeping with the tone of my preferred authors. Um, so I think I would now move on to the third and final section, which is the complementary media. First, a couple of RPGs I want, just want to quickly mention, uh, which um, I know I've talked about them in previous episodes, but they are worth mentioning again. Um, so I already mentioned a Las Vegas and its fugue system of tarot significators and drawing cards. The idea there is that um, you have a bunch of amnesiac characters, you use a tarot deck for drawing cards, um, and each of the player's characters has a significator. When that turns up, certain things might happen, certain visions might appear. And you can also put visions into the scenario. The second one is When the Dark is Gone by Becky Allison, which is part of the Seven Wonders book. And mostly this is interesting as a discussion about what happens when people, um, so for example, children like in Narnia or magicians like in Piranesi, uh, when people visit other worlds and then come back and try to make sense of that world. Uh, I think this would need slightly heavier hacking to get closer to what Piranesi is doing, but I think it's worth bearing in mind and it could make a really great game. The next heading I have under media is video games, uh, because this novel put me in mind of a particular subset of video games that involves puzzle solving in an emergent sandbox world with not many people about. Um, so lots of examples. Um, there's Mist, there's Zork Nemesis, there's Amnesia the Dark Descent, um, What Became of Edith Finch, I think, well, that's more of a walking sim. The Talos Principle, Monument Valley on um, iOS and the room on iOS. Um, these are all kind of a sort of emergent world where the character goes further and further into the landscape, solving puzzles and gets access to more of the world. Now, uh, puzzle solving aside, which is going to be uh, always going to be slightly tricky to do in uh, in RPGs, all of these set the tone on I mean, they will have an internally consistent world that they're presenting to you um, so next i want to mention books and after i finished piranesi i read m john harrison's the sunken lands begin to rise again which 
has some interesting similarities, although that might be the bias because I'd just been reading Piranesi. But I did note that it also has a small cast of characters, and all of those characters, despite having uh, what appear to be disparate plot threads and arcs, they're all connected. They're all connected through other people as well. Um, it is a real world, and the uh, it, it's more about the people in it experiencing a kind of haunted liminal world that, that Harrison always does really well. Um, but one of the other similarities with the suggestion of pathways into a sort of hidden world, which is made quite explicit, by the way, in Piranesi, you know, it's a, it's a consciousness shift. And, and one of the characters says, yes, I, I thought that they were talking about seeing new pathways as a metaphor. Actually, it's very literal. Um, and one of the things that Harrison uses in the novel is water as a continued motif. And in my view, it's a gateway between worlds. Uh, in this case, the world of humanity and that of some kind of uh, amphibious precursor species, which is the subject of a fairly surreal and inept conspiracy. And that there's a lot more to the novel, in particular the allusions to Brexit and the, the state of towns ravaged by Thatcherism. Um, but another of Harrison's books uh, is The Course of the Heart, which is partly about magical rituals and how they transform people. And in that case, it's more like the ritual lets something out of the magical space to haunt our world. But the theme of transition is still there. So then it's, it's still all about haunting. And the last thing I want to talk about is Lenormand cards. You know, this is a cartomancy technique from the 19th century, uh, which is kind of like a simplified but expanded major arcana, where the interactions of the cards in a spread are the divination. And my patrons will know I've been a bit obsessed of late with uh, the Lenormand, and I've produced another draft of my magical game, Grand Tableau. Um, so there's kind of a certain amount of bias on reading Piranesi, but um, I did catch one or two allusions in the classical imagery of the statues, which form the landmarks for Piranesi as he navigates the house. So I think if I was going to run a Piranesi-style game, I would absolutely lean on those images and synergize them with um, the Lenormand deck or a tarot or something else, you know, that's that's image rich and that you can match the image in the tarot to what the PCs are seeing. And I think that's all I want to say. So thank you so much for listening. And in particular, thanks to my patrons whose support drives me on. Now, if you'd like to support the podcast, you could like, share, subscribe and maybe write me a five-star review in iTunes. But then if you want to support further and get some of my writing every month and the odd bonus episode, maybe check out the Patreon page. It's in the show notes. Music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. And find out more at chrisabriskie.com. Catch you next time for the 100th episode. Bye-bye.